Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. But you you got me again with one of your one statement that really, really struck me. Probably the most profound sentence, I think, in the whole class so far. Oh, I want to hear. Uh, it's a sentence that said, this is not merely a matter of personal piety or concern for the preservation of untainted, untainted religion. Rather, it is the means of exposing the Antichrist, defeating Satan, and redeeming the cosmos. Not to remove the individual, but unfortunately, I think we've just so focused on individual salvation that we've left out what the Bible's about. It certainly involves individuals, but in a cosmic participation. And I think that's the the key factor here. And so it is a kind of shift in subject matter. We're no longer focused on sin and guilt in the way that it can be focused upon. I grew up Nazarene, so that's kind of a pietistic holiness type thinking. And what really shocked me was the day my former Calvinist pastor preached the sermon, basically saying the, the greatest need for the church today is piety, personal piety. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just sat there stunned. I'm like, wow, this contradicts everything you've ever said Calvinism stands for and puts me right back to square one where I started, which would have, you know, stood squarely against anything Arminian or pietistic or right. you know, I just I just I I couldn't even imagine where he was coming from with that. Yeah. This is kind of what I've spent my life doing. And I haven't necessarily been real swift at it because you're just inundated with bad information. Right. You know, going to seminary actually doesn't help at all. Right. Probably makes it worse. It made it worse, at least in my case. I'm not saying it always does. But yeah, the guy that was one of my key professors, he would say he was anti-Calvinist, but man, it was penal substitution and just a hard shell doctrine. If you don't know anything, it's hard to get your feet and figure out. What's wrong with this, you know? Right. You don't know any alternatives. Yeah. I got my education not in school, but as a kind of reaction to the schooling I had. And it came very slowly for me because if you have somebody that just points you and say, well, here's another direction you can go. Either I never had that happen or I just missed it. I came at it in Japan and the libraries I had there was a university library and had very good postmodern sections. I kind of read my way back into theology from a very different perspective. Yeah, I think the the personal reading and being exposed to various bigger ideas, whether you agree with them or not, helps you to evaluate better what you've been taught or what you've believed all your life. And I think that's in this country, I don't think most people can locate themselves. I think that's becoming less and less true. More people are being exposed to a broader understanding. It was kind of strange, but I started reading Jürgen Moltmann, who is a German theologian, who is heretical, but he's interestingly heretical. It was a new perspective. Right. And so I was very much taken with Moltmann. 
And somewhere in there, I, I encountered Stanley Howells, but I really can't remember even when even I encountered him. But I, I read a lot in German idealism. So what you're getting in somebody like Hegel, I, I mean, you understand Hegel's a complete heretic. I'm not Hegelian, but sometimes I think we almost need a Hegelian kind of heresy because he has this deep appreciation for history and real-world events in history. So for him, everything happened historically. I, you know, he's really kind of atheistic in that sense. That's actually, you know, where Moltmann, that's his point of departure. He just openly embraces a Hegelian understanding from a Christian perspective, hmm. which that got me into the psychoanalytic stuff because Moltmann is very much acquainted with Freud and does a whole section on Freud. That's right. an odd way to come to, <laughs> I know, that was just my route. I don't recommend <laughs> it, but. Right. God uses amazing ways to open our minds and expose us to our ignorance and deceptions. I think so. I'm sure I was a hard nut to crack, but if I can be cracked, I guess anybody can. That's kind of how I feel. <laughs> hey, Jim. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I tell you. This time's got me messed up. I was I was out taking my walk, and all of a sudden I said, "Dang, what time is it?" <laughs> <laughs> hey, Brian, how you doing? Hey, I'm fine. How are y'all today? I can feel everybody's a little bit happier because the sun <laughs> is shining. <laughs> yeah, but everybody else is going to be in an, an hour off, right? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I don't know about our down under guys how that affects them. We'll see. We'll just have to save all the good stuff for last, right? I guess so. Do you feel like, like you understand Gerard? No, but I feel like he's more familiar than he was. I told you before that I had found you because I was looking up information and help learning about Gerard himself. Mm. It was a few years ago, and I've kind of stuck with it. Felt like I've got a pretty good handle on him, and it's been resonating. Your uh, the class and all the everything I've heard since I found you, and initially heard about Gerard uh, in sync with you, made more and more sense as it's gone along. Part of the bizarre aspect of Gerard that, as far as I know, there is no alternative to Girardian theory, and that is an interpreting myth. And if you've never dealt with religious myth, to say that somebody has a key to religious myth is a huge thing, because as far as I know, nobody's ever suggested that they understood what was happening. His theory is an explanation of religious myth. It makes sense if through what Gerard read and interpreted in literature and ultimately interpreted in the Bible um, as a modern scholar with literary criticism at as a disposal, it wasn't really much of a thing before the modern period, I guess. The Bible actually provides the exposure, right? The scriptures are the actual text that makes other works of literature, like novels of Dostoevsky and whoever else, uh, Proust and Faust, all of these great novels of our classical literature and, and worldwide in anthropological myth. That's why he had to cross so many disciplines. That was a profound insight. I'm going to ask you to walk across that again. I took it as the Bible is like a tool or a lens through which to see literature. Well, what I'm trying to say is that I, I'm comfortable with it and familiar with it by recognizing that Gerard is simply the first of modern scholars, and maybe therefore the first of any Christian, modern Christian, to, to put it out there 
out loud in thought and word. It doesn't feel like new revelation. I'm not saying that. It feels like a, a good critical reading or plain reading of what the Bible did and what Christ did and what it did. And, and it's in the context. And I, I feel like our problem as modern believers is not really having as much of a foil in surrounding culture because we're so like, you know, Christendom and Constantinian Christianity has sort of fused with, and even our theology has become an expression of the sort of standard myth of reflecting sort of the pagan ideals. So what Brian is describing, you know, Gerard, he was a literary specialist. He came to religion and he began to study religion as a result of studying literature. And what he discovered in people like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and then Shakespeare is that there is always a mimetic desire, you know, that two people, they get into competition over a third thing. So this kind of rivalry. And he's just saying that structures classical literature. And then he began to read religious myths. Let me give you an example of, this is from, uh, I think this is the Aztecs. They say that before there was day in the world, the gods came together in that place in which is called Teotihuacan. They said to one another, oh gods, who will have the burden of lighting the world? So there's this council of the gods, and we need, we need to keep the sun coming up. Then to these words answered a god named, I'm butchering the names, but Tecuzectal. And he said, I shall take the burden of lighting the world. Then once more the gods spoke and they said, who will be another? Then they looked at another and deliberated on who the other should be. And none of them dared offer himself for that office. All were afraid and declined. One of the gods to whom no one was paying attention and who was covered with pustules, did not speak, but listened to what the other gods were saying. And the other gods spoke to him and said to him, You be the one who is to give light, little pustule-covered one. And right willingly he obeyed what they commanded. And he answered, Thankfully I accept what you have commanded me to do. Let it be as you say. What in the world is this about? I smell BS. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean by so. that is, and what I'm learning about is the myth of myth. It's like that's a narrative that is false. It's a lie. And it, and it was changed in order to make it look like it was divine will, I guess. And it was voluntary that the the one who is sacrificed and the one who loses his life was happy and voluntarily did it when they were lynched. <laughs> In reality. And we know that's true because of the pattern. There may be these stories that deify the, the victim afterwards and show it as voluntary and, oh, well, I'm happy to, to, to serve this role for the community's sake. But I think that is the candy coating or the sugar coating that happens of it. Oh, okay. And so several things that in what Brian said here, First of all, usually when we read myth, we just think, oh, this is just some crazy story. But what Gerard is saying, well, is no, actually something happened historically. And I don't know that anybody ever said that. And, and of course, what happened is precisely what's not in the myth. As Brian said, it's a cover-up. The myth is a deception. It's a cover-up. Exactly who's doing the cover-up and who's generating this, 
I think it is these people themselves, they're covering up a murder. Somebody died. Somebody got killed. The scapegoat got killed. But of course, after the scapegoat dies, or after you kill someone, after you sacrifice them, maybe you're sacrificing them. What was the uh, the movie about the Aztecs? You know, they're just continually sacrificing. Mel Gibson? Mel Gibson's movie. Sacrifice succeeds because the sun came up. The, then you deify the sacrifice. That a full scapegoat mechanism will always, I say always, but almost always, there is a hall of space in which, like here, oh, the little pustule-covered one. What might that be, that he's a little pustule-covered one? Why would this one be a good one to, to be a sacrifice? Could it be he's one of the weaker ones within the community or society? He may have leprosy. He may be, he's got apparently some sort of skin disease. In other words, the scapegoat will often have something that marks them as different or at least a perceived difference. Sometimes it's an obvious difference. Sometimes it's not an obvious difference. The liability, like the liability to the community or imperfect and therefore disposable. Yeah. And so they could be enemy soldiers. They could be slaves. It could be someone new that comes into the community. And maybe things seem to go wrong. You know, this new person comes into the community and suddenly we're all sick. Oh, I bet it was him that did it. And so then everybody converges on the newcomer and they sacrifice them. And now, hey, I, I feel better, do you? And instead of remembering that we killed him, we remember that he gave his life that we might live. He sacrificed himself that the nation might live. In other words, it's the exact language of the scapegoating mechanism that is put in the mouth of Caiaphas, the high priest. These myths are everywhere. I think you could just say every culture has a, a founding myth. So, Paul, when I'm over in uh, West Africa, several times I've, I've run into albinos, uh, as far as African albinos. We, we had one where the mother brought her son. They, they lived deep in the bush, and they brought her son into to the main city there in Monrovia. And part of that was protection because albinos are hunted mm. in Liberia. Uh, they are killed. And then there's the belief that their body parts have some magical powers and stuff. So whoever p possesses that, I, I wonder if in some sense, that's their scapegoating mechanism uh, with, within that culture. They've got actually, there's a lot of scapegoating mechanisms within that culture, but kind of reminded of that one. I just saw a documentary. They were taking a, uh, uh, children that were born, if their teeth came in in a particular way, can't remember what it was. And if they came in a particular way, they'd kill them. Some people came in, you know, actually the local, and start trying to save these children. And so it can be almost anything. Just any little difference will be seen as demonic. And of course, to stop doing this, wait a minute, the demons are, you know, the gods are going to be angry or the demons will get us. You know, this is a tragedy that happens. Actually, Africa is an interesting example because sometimes they've not been exposed. So Gerard's point is that where Christianity has spread, the scapegoating mechanism is no longer effective. In saying that, that doesn't mean that there aren't scapegoats. What is meant by that is the full mechanism. It no longer turns into myth, and that's his claim. So let me give you another example. This is from the Middle 
ages. This is 1349 to 1350. And this is an account of the Black Death. After that time, that came a false, treacherous, and contemptible swine. This was shameful Israel. The wicked and disloyal who hated good and loved everything evil, who gave so much gold and silver and promises to Christians, who then poisoned several rivers and fountains that had been clear and pure so that many lost their lives, for whoever used them died suddenly. Certainly 10 times 100,000 died from it in country and in city. So this is the plague. And they discovered that the cause of the plague is these Jews were poisoning their source of water. Then finally, this calamity was noticed. He who sits on high and sees far, who governs and provides for everything, did not want this treachery to remain hidden. He revealed it and made it generally known so that they lost their lives and possessions. Then every Jew was destroyed. Some hanged, others burned, some were drowned, others beheaded with an axe or sword, and many Christians died together with them in shame. And this is from Gilam de Manchet, Judgment of the King of Navarre. What's happening in this text? Find a common enemy or somebody that you can say, this darkness has come upon us because of this group of people. So the Jews are causing the plague. So the Jews are causing the plague, yeah. So we got to kill them all. So you got to kill them all. Yeah. And historically that happened. Jews got wiped out. And by the way, this is a fairly common occurrence. In Japan, the Kanto earthquake, Tokyo caught on fire. And it turns out that the Koreans were at fault. Those dirty Koreans lit up the houses. And so they had to take them and to slaughter the Koreans. Here is the lie. Here's the scapegoat. The, a bad thing has happened, and these foreigners or these Jews or, you know, they did it. But what's missing here that is there in the, the Aztec story? They never become heroes. There's no myth. Yeah. We can read this and say, wait a minute, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Those Jews didn't do that. We know, we know, just reading the text is bald face. Nobody's going to, unless you're just in today's culture, I'm never sure. But it, it's transparent what happened. But you understand the Aztec myth is not transparent. The myth hides the reality. It hides the reality. Somebody got murdered. We don't even know if it was a group of people, one person. But that all gets covered up in the mythologizing. The person that got killed became a god. That's the full myth. So are they trying to explain death that's unexplainable? Are they trying to explain evil? What is it that they're dealing with? They're dealing with a calamity, or they're dealing with a transgression, and they're covering up a murder. This is what Gerard is describing, and he gives examples. This is the thing I haven't done for you. But we have access to example after example of where people will just converge on an individual or a group of individuals and slaughter them. The reason they're killing them is some the society in some way, it's falling apart or something, there's a calamity. Maybe the crops, you know, maybe the crops didn't grow. The demons and the gods may be angry and we need to, we need to appease them. It can be any kind of calamity. This is another example and see if you can 
at this one. This is an American native myth. A woman has intercourse with a dog and gives birth to six puppies. Her tribe banishes her, and she is forced to hunt for her own food. One day, as she returns from the bush, she discovers that the puppies are children and that they shed their animal skins the moment she leaves the house. So she pretends to leave, and when her children are, as it were, undressed, she takes their skins away, forcing them to keep their human identity from now on. The woman becomes a great goddess, punishing bestiality, incest, and all societal rules. What do you think's happening there? Sounds like they were probably all slaughtered or sacrificed. Yeah, something bad happened. It, incest or bestiality. But what do you think happened to the woman in this story? Whatever she did, whether she did anything. She's probably uh, killed. I think so. You know, some of these myths, they're really hard to say what happened. In Japan, I know it's Izanami and Izanagi in the, is it the Kojiki? What will usually happen, one of the gods dies, you know, voluntarily. And then from the death, the islands of Japan, is it Izanami that is the female goddess? She dies, there's imagery of sex, and then she dies, and then out of her come the islands of Japan. We think this is probably what is contemporary to Genesis. Have you all heard of the Enuma Elish? You know, Marduk and the gods get in a fight, and one of the body of the gods becomes the canopy of head. So this this is just a strange world, religious myth. It's just almost impossible to navigate. And so Gerard posed this idea. He says, yeah, I know what's happening because the same thing is always missing. What's always missing is that somebody gets killed. And then he picks up the Old Testament, assuming that the Old Testament is more myth, because this is the way in historical critical studies, you know, people like Boltmann and others, they're going to talk about the Bible as mythological. What Gerard means by myth are the kind of things I'm reading here. And you pick up the Old Testament, and guess what? Cain kills Abel, and there's no cover-up. And then you just go through. Lamech is a killer. The generation of Noah, they're killers. In other words, there's lots of murder in the Old Testament, but the murders are not covered up. And the more Gerard reads... He, and then he finally gets to the New Testament, and he, he recognizes, oh, what's happening here is there is this demythologization. And so instead of seeing the Bible as more myth, he sees it as, in fact, against the myth, over and against myth, up to the passion of Christ, in which the pronouncement of Christ, when they kill him, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And Gerard goes through, he does a close reading of, of many of the stories of Jesus. Is the difference then between myth and non-myth based upon, so the, the myth story about the Native American woman or the Aztecs and stuff like that, those are myth, not necessarily because they didn't happen per se, but myth because somehow they're, they receive some godlike status. Whereas what you're saying, Gerard is saying, is, as he went through the Old Testament and I mean, they called it out and said, no, Lamech did murder all these people. Yeah. Is that, I, I'm just trying to clarify that 
Yes, yes, that's it. His point is, this is precisely not myth. And so what you get in the stories of the Old Testament, think of the two prostitutes who come to Solomon, and they both claim the baby. You know, what Solomon does from that day on, he's going to his wisdom. This is what makes him famous. His wisdom becomes famous because he's able to discover whose baby this really is. And the way he does it is, of course, very Girardian, because he says, let's split the baby in two, and you can each take one half of the baby home. There's this mimetic rivalry over the child. The one woman says, good idea. Give me my half of the baby. I'm going home. And the other woman says, no, don't kill the child. Let this other woman have her. You know, it's obvious who the true mother is by that point, because the one who is purely locked in mimetic rivalry, envy, you know, is clearly the one who would just destroy the child so that the other woman couldn't have the child. Uh, And you could just begin to read the Old Testament in that fashion, that again and again, in other words, instead of a murder being covered up, instead, in Gerard's reading, what is happening is the scapegoating mechanism or the mimetic desire, you know, that's why does Cain kill Abel? Because Abel has access to God and Cain wants that. You know, why did Joseph's brothers, why would they kill Joseph? Because Joseph is the favored son. And of course, the way, the end of the story of Joseph and his brothers, the oldest brother and the youngest brother. Who's the youngest brother? Benjamin. That's Benjamin, yeah. And, and then Reuben's the oldest. Joseph said he purposely recreates the situation. And he says, I'll take Benjamin and hold him hostage. And Reuben says, no, take me. Wow. In other words, now Reuben is willing to sacrifice himself for his brother, whereas previously all the brothers had been willing to sacrifice Joseph for themselves. And so there's a kind of uncovering. And of course, at that point, Joseph breaks down weeping because he realized that his in that event, his brothers have been restored to him as brothers. And he, he says, you know, he has everyone leaving. He's weeping. He says, I'm Joseph, your brother. (laughs) It's really moving. They then are willing to put themselves in the place of the scapegoat. That's what we're called to in the Gospels. Rather than practicing scapegoating, we're actually to identify with the, the one who is on the cross. The scapegoat himself is the one that we identify with. And I presume that's not a one off event. And this, of course, this is very uncomfortable for all of us. It's very dangerous, you understand, to put yourself in the place of the scapegoat because they'll kill you. I mean, that's that's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's why there aren't very many people that actually do this thing. That's why even the apostles fail because what you find when there's unleashed rage, Gerard is kind of brilliant at describing this. You know, rage is blind. Think of the boys at Columbine High School. Presumably, they were picked on, they were bullied. But of course, they didn't go in and shoot the bullies. They just went in and shot anybody at random. And that's sort of Gerard's point is that rage is, will just lock onto a victim. It doesn't matter who the victim is. And this is the significance. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're blind. That anger, rage is blinding. And there is this kind of myth 
making in the process, that you can see it unfolding, that you unleash the rage, you know, you're not going to look back and fully recognize perhaps what you yourself have done. That er everybody's kind of like the, the gang that everybody stabs, but nobody does the deed themselves. He just magically died, and then we all got better, and now he's a god. You, you made the comment that Gerard was bizarre. Is there some point where you think he goes off the rails, or you said he's he has a, there's a bizarre aspect to Gerard. You understand he's going against biblical scholarship. He's defining myth in a very particular way, and then he's saying precisely that the Bible is not mythological but it's a, a deconstruction of myth. I don't remember why I used the word bizarre. How is that against biblical scholarship? I know it's it's kind of novel, but I, I mean, very novel, but I, I mean, I know it's controversial because people think it's too simple or it's too <laughs> too plain. How did I miss that or whatever? I don't, I'm yet to understand the resistance to it because it kind of implicates the status quo of our theology. Um, but I, I just wonder how it directly challenges our, I guess, the biblical scholarship, besides offering a very plain, good logical. sense alternative, logical alternative and, and, and integrating. It's it's almost like a grand unified theory. From It is, <laughs> from, yeah. From me. Well, yeah, and I'm mainly talking about liberal historical critical. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. that, that what they would all be saying Oh, yeah, from he said Bolton. the same thing with uh, anthropology. Like, it was very politically correct to say it was the colonial anthropologist who assumed that other cultures were always so violent that the human sacrifices that were made, it was not politically correct to say that all the non-Christian religions out there in the world were vicious. But it was actually true that there are evidence all around the world that it was a universal practice to, to do child sacrifice or human sacrifice. That was part of definitely what challenged the status quo for him to, to claim it and to say, well, actually, there is evidence and this makes sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not PC for, yeah. for sure. I may have just been saying that the myths are bizarre. I can't remember what I said about Gerard, but I don't know how to read myth apart from Gerard. Right. The second part of Janice's question, though, I'm interested too. Is there anything that you feel like he goes off, like that you disagree with or that you can't go there with him in your own construal and, and understanding of that you've taught and teach up to this point and believe? And what I mean, is there anything that's problematic for you in his? Well, it may have already come out in the way that I'm presenting Gerard. We're into week six and we're just now getting to Gerard. And so many people who are Girardian just kind of think he's omnicompetent, that Girard explains everything. And that's obviously not what I'm doing with Girard. And that's kind of a partly, you know, putting him at the end. I think there's legitimacy in what Girard is doing. And I don't know that Girard himself would have said, oh, this just explains everything about Christianity and the sacrifice of Christ. So that's one thing is that many Girardians, once they're Girardians, that's all they want to talk about. They're going to just tie everything into Girardian theory. I think Girardian theory is very helpful, and it does, in, in fact, explain jealousy and rage and, and myth. But I think that we can, uh, as 
clearly, as we've done in the class, we've brought in other things. And I don't think those things necessarily contradict. I think that they fit together. The other thing is that Gerard is going to say that sacrifice he, he's not going to give any special reading of the sacrificial system in the Bible. But many people who, in fact, like Gerard, have gone back to say, we can read the sacrificial system as, in fact, not according with the sacrificial systems of other religions, that what is happening in Jewish sacrifice is precisely the undoing of sacrifice as it normally occurs that it is not an end in and of itself, that it's, a, you know, it's, the Jews themselves understood the sacrifice is a kind of metaphor for something else. And specifically, what it's a metaphor of is not bloodletting, but in fact, cleansing the temple of death. You know, what gets sent out of the temple is death and sin. And the sacrifices that are retained in the temple they're a sign of what God wants is life, and that's the significance. I don't think Gerard would buy that, and I'm not particularly disturbed either way, because, of course, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there's nothing anti-Semitic about explaining, well, it's not simply Christians that are questioning the sacrificial system. There's a whole prophetic tradition, a minor prophetic tradition, that is questioning you know, Jeremiah says in the voice of God, I never asked for sacrifice. Wait a minute. <laughs> but that's also there in the Psalms, and that's, you know, you can find that throughout. And so it's not simply, you know, so people are very quick to accuse Christianity of a kind of displacement of Judaism. But no, this is a tension that's there in the Hebrew Bible. In other words, I, I think that there may be another explanation to the sacrificial system. The, the idea of imagining, and I don't, I don't blame Gerard for this, uh, that Gerardian theory explains fully and completely the work of Christ. I think it helps explain that, but my own work has taken that and said, well, we can also apply it psychoanalytically. You know, I think there's many ways that the work of Christ can be explained, and I think Gerard fits into that, not as a full explanation of everything, but as a, as a part of an explanation. I've done a couple of interviews with a guy named Michael Harden. He knew Gerard, and he knew Schwager. Raymond Schwager is the priest that many say Schwager influenced Gerard as much as Gerard influenced Schwager. And so if you want to buy a book on Gerard, I actually think the book by Raymond Schwager, it's an old book, but it's very good. You know, I think it's Must There Be Scapegoats. You know, I don't know how far Gerard came toward Schwager's understanding. Harden, Michael Harden knew both of them and was very much involved in the establishment of the Girardian Society in the United States. And so all Michael Harden wants to talk about is Rene Girard. You know, okay. I think Girard is an explanation of many things, but not everything. I struggle with that tension in part because it is pretty revolutionary. And, it, and like I said, I, I, the context in part that it came to me in was recognizing something about human nature and, and as looking at it in the way we do politics and democratic society is we we blame the opposite party and if there's ever a, a war or something world war ii or 9 11 for a moment at least we're unified against a common enemy so what brings unity is a common enemy and as an explanation for 
political, just the way things work and what can bring unity, that fits really well. The Girardian scheme really does, can be expressed at all levels in what it takes to unify groups of any kind, much less to um, to help break down walls between groups and just the way that Christ's manifestation of the scapegoating, being the scapegoat victim, and him also conquering it, it kind of harkens on what C.S. Lewis said about myth, or Christianity is the true myth. Because for a while, the concept of mimesis was sort of a crit- critiquing of Christianity, right? I mean, it said that all that Christianity is, is a projection of repeated patterns of a hero giving his life or something like that. And so all these myths that came before Christianity kind of help explain its success. And you can sort of tuck it away from the modern point of view. But C.S. Lewis said, no, it's just not surprising that, that there would be former pale versions of the true myth that came before it. So anyway, Gerard's theory kind of appealed to that for me. And, and I, I definitely spoke of it as, is this a grand unified theory? <laughs> Yeah, no, I I think it's a way of reading myth and history and human desire, you know. But Gerard himself came to recognize, he, I think at first, thought of mimesis as simply negative, that it's always going to create competition. Mm -hmm. But then he realized, oh, yeah, but we do imitate Christ. Mm -hmm. It's still mimetic, you know, you're still imitating someone. And so he begins to talk about a good mimesis. uh, Yeah. That's just the way we do. That's that's just human. We learn through imitation, right? and we desire, you know, what the other. We want to be the other, but in Christ, that is taken and turned around. I mean, isn't that the way Satan always works? He always takes what God designed to be good. You know, I mean, we have sensual appetites to stay alive. We need to eat, drink, procreate for life to continue, but Satan distorts and corrupts that and uses it for our harm and to bring violence and death and everything bad. So, I mean, there's always going to be element of truth, even when the myth is wrapped around a lie. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. What the fear of death does is introduce a zero-sum game into the equation. And if we're playing a zero-sum game, whatever the stuff is, to go around is a limited amount. And that means we're in competition. And that's precisely what's undone in the person and work of Christ. Now, I've always presumed, now this may sound strange to you, but a Girardian application to the Old Testament, bear with me now, but think of the generation before the Tower of Babel, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They're psychopathic killers. There was no shame. If you're righteous, you can't survive. And then the Tower of Babel occurs, and and with the Tower of Babel subsequent to that, idolatry appears. Idolatry and Girardian, the picture of a Girardian sacrificial religion, you understand it really is an improvement over every man's a natural-born killer. Yeah, I was trying to figure out a way to articulate that because Christ ended up, and biblical revelation exposed it to be something that was one, incomplete, only, I guess, penultimately effective, and it was temporarily effective to bring peace to communities. So that's the best I guess I could come up with was it wasn't ultimate, but it was a positive direction. (laughs) 
we don't really know, you know, but something like Babel, whether it's literally that or, you know, if Babel is taking place over a long period of time, whatever that is, but what occurs is people are pitted against one another because of the, the confusion of the language. And then idolatry seems to unfold in that situation. Scapegoating really does usually work. Now, I think it works differently in different cultures. You know, you sacrifice the scapegoat, or as long as the mechanism is in place, Gerard says, well, the crops really do get planted. Things really are more abundant. There really is order, because the alternative is the generation of Noah, every man for himself, total violence. And that's the way Gerard is reading the generation of Noah. In fact, that's the way he reads the flood. He, sa- he thinks the flood is myth itself. It's not exactly myth because what is happening is it's just total violence. When everybody turns on everybody, there is just this slaughter. And so the, the scapegoating mechanism does hold society together for a period. Just a quick rewind. You mentioned that there's psychopathic killing, and then the Tower of Babel is sort of like a shift to a sacrificial system. That is my reading. I'm assuming, as far as I can read, there is no idolatry prior to Babel. I don't know what the religious system is. There's sacrifice, you know, Cain and Abel or Abel sacrificing. So maybe there's something, but we don't know what that is. But after Babel, idolatry, even in the household of Abraham, they're all carrying their household idols. And so my reading of that is that there is a resolution to the the murderous generation of Noah in the confusion of the languages and the rise of, I think, a sacrificial idolatrous religion. I'm not dogmatic about that, but I'm just, that's what I'm reading. I would assume that it's better to live post-Babel than pre-Babel, because if you're a righteous man, they're going to get you. And I assume the Abels of the world got thinned out real quick. That's what John says. He says Abel was righteous, and Cain, that's why he killed him. He didn't like that. And that's a theme in the Old Testament. The righteous get slaughtered. You don't think that's still true today? Yeah, (laughs) I think it is. That's why nobody likes a nonviolent gospel. It leaves you defenseless. How are we going to kill our enemies? How are we going to protect ourselves? And you understand this is partly Gerard's point, that once the scapegoating mechanism is improved, we're really only left with two choices. You know, right now, we have mutually assured destruction. It is mad. In other words, quite literally, we are in a position of total violence, that mankind can literally just destroy the whole thing. And of course, the other, uh, it's not just in in nuclear weapons, but also in climate change that we are doing that. We're going to either do it quickly or slowly, or we're going to find the peace of Christ. There is no mediating point between those two things. It's either mad madness or the peace of Christ. And that's one of the last articles that Gerard writes. It's actually a very dark article. It's actually in uh, First Things, I think that he says it may be that Christ has unleashed the violence that's going to result in Armageddon. That seems to be obvious, that we literally can create total destruction. Whereas I don't think that people subject to 
scapegoating technologically or otherwise that, that the violence really did it was a controlled violence in a, an idolatrous sacrificial violence at least it's controlled and it really does channel the violence we, we don't know how many people died you know it may be gen genocidal or it may not but the levels of violence varies and the mechanism works differently in different peoples but it did work and that's gerard's point did you mention Christ saying, don't think I came to bring peace, I came to bring a sword? Was that one, one of your questions? questions? Yeah, how is it that Christ may unleash even more violence? Yeah. And I think he talks, Gerard talks about Antichrist, the very fact that Christ shows us the way of love as a path to peace and humility, the path to peace opens up the possibility of a worse kind of evil than was that possible before corruption of it is worse but it really is like it's it's the positive identification of the other edge of that sword the peace is now possible and you can choose this path and walk along it but it of course includes suffering and but also the scapegoat mechanism being removed there's no other bonding agent for peace even the false peace or the limited peace that always leads to another lynching or justification of violence somehow that is always made made worse or more pronounced and he's got an apocalyptic element that i don't i don't have my mind quite wrapped around but the unfolding and the unleashing of of both the, the highest possible good of Christ and love and uh, following his his path and the Holy Spirit versus things are also going to get worse from here. You know, the temple was sacked and a lot was undone immediately. If Christ is the height of goodness, of the image of God, isn't it just a logical presumption? And this is Kierkegaard, but I think it's Gerard. But at the same time, we have this ultimate goodness. The perversion of this goodness also allows for an evil of unprecedented proportions. And that's why I think the perversion of Christianity is an evil unlike any evil that has ever been unleashed on the world. And that may sound too dark. I'm happy for you to say, no, nah, that can't be. But I don't know how to get around it because that's the literal reality that we're faced with. You know, Christ is the first to come along and say that he's going to change the world. You understand that's a strange idea. You know, everybody else, the cosmic forces, the gods, the powers, you don't change those powers. You just obey them and follow them. And Christ comes along and says, I'm introducing an apocalyptic order. But understand then we also get from that a perversion. For example, in Marx, who also says, yes, we can change up, we can literally put our hands on the levers of power. But I think Marx is simply one of many examples of people who have taken this Christian truth. It is a realization. We can manipulate this thing. Marx would manipulate it for a kind of secular utopia. I think it's a kind of secular heresy. But this is sort of the modern scientism. This is the impetus behind the modern nationalism, the revolutions that we've seen, you know, or been close to. Suddenly, revolution and changing up the system is a given reality. We can change the whole system, and that's been proven again and again. 
I think that's a, an idea unleashed by Christ and perverted. In other words, if you're going to have access to goodness, I think it comes at the cost of a profound sort of evil. I'm saying all this. You know, what it may sound like I'm saying was, well, if we could return to those good old days where a little good pagan mythology. And I think obviously living under that kind of delusion is its own sort of punishment. But it did at least preserve some people. So now tell me, David, explain why I'm totally mistaken in this understanding. Paul, this is uh, this is the one time I agree with you. <laughs> okay. So, although the last statement that you made I thought was uh, somewhat interesting because uh, maybe this is the illusion that we give ourselves when we say the good old days, uh, even if we put it in the American historical context, we're usually speaking to those uh, people that were in positions of power. Good old days uh, for who? For slaves? Wasn't the good old days uh, uh, civil rights? You know, wasn't Usually that's the good old days is usually just uh, if you benefited from it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to go very far back in the history of this country to realize, you know, some of us are of an age that we were actually raised in a country that was more or less on the order of South African apartheid. But we didn't know it. I mean, we didn't right? Know we didn't, it. You didn't realize it. It's all if, we knew. If you're raised in hatred, you don't know that. You don't even recognize your own prejudices. If I could wave a magic wand, I'd require every 20, 21-year-old to spend a couple years in another culture and then come back. So Hegel talks about the slaughter bench of history. And of course, that's what history has been for most people. It has been a slaughter bench. You know, you just think of the total waste. You know, when we talk about war in the Greek city-states, I can't remember what I was reading. He said, yeah, but understand that probably war in among, among the Greek city-states, which is a regular affair, and they all knew they were they were going to make peace. He said probably the injuries were on the order of a prof a, a modern day professional football game. Mm -hmm. This is the problem once you introduce God into the equation. This is kind of where we begin. That once it's a religious war, then there is a justification for total slaughter. And so religious war makes for a true bloodletting. This is, again, where Christianity gone bad has unleashed a kind of war. You know, just think World War One, World War Two, even the wars leading up to that, I think, were, were bloodier. They were religious wars. And when God got introduced into it, I mean, in a sense, the gods were always there. Part, you know, the, every nation has its warrior god, and the god does its fighting. But again, I think that Christianity gone bad, Christianity giving up on the peace of Christ and making Christ a kind of warrior God, the slaughter is even worse, because now we take the impetus of laying down your life as if that is a, to go out and die killing. That's literally in World War One. what's written on the tombs, the soldiers, as if they fulfilled the taking up of the cross in participating in the slaughter. And isn't that every war that America is a part of? Because we're a Christian nation, every, you know, we, we can kill because we're, we're doing it in the name of God and for justice and peace and as if killing is what brings peace. I mean, it's just the whole futility of it seems so bizarre. Yeah. Have any of you read uh, Greg Boyd's? I haven't actually read it. I've looked at it. Uh, his book on uh, the crucifixion of the warrior God. Is that the name of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm about 175 pages in. 
Oh, run it down for us, David. I can only do the 175 pages. <laughs> but in that first 175 pages of some 11 or 1200 pages, I don't know how long it is. It's my book for the next two years. But, you know, he's trying to explain Old Testament violence. Uh, he spent the first 175 pages uh, basically building the argument that we need to see God through the lens of Jesus. That's literally what he's done for 175 pages. So I'm, I'm waiting for him to make his next move. But I, I think he's trying to e explain, maybe without allegory, try to explain the violence in the Old Testament. In other words, he's not trying to explain it away. No, not at all. He's No, he's not trying to explain it away. He's saying, no, this is there. There is a presentation of a warrior god in the Old Testament that is like all of the pagan gods. This is what God always does. This is what gods do for people. They help them kill off their enemies. And Christ comes in, and I think that we need to not smooth over that tension. I think we need to accentuate it and say, no, that violence is there. It's there in the Old Testament. And even in the Old Testament, there is, you know, it's not like the Old Testament is simply that because there is a counter voice in the Old Testament. But then in Christ, that that minor prophetic tradition comes full force. You know, when we talk about him abrogating or questioning the law, when we, what we mean by the law, we mean the first five books of the Bible. Christ doesn't hesitate to change the food laws. That's what Mark says. He's not, it, you know, the way we would do this as good evangelical conservatives is to say, well, he never touched, you know, anything that was in the Bible itself. Oh, wait a minute. No, the food laws are right out of the Old Testament. And Mark said, and with this saying, he did away with the food laws. In other words, he's saying, no, that's wrong. He does that with the Sabbath. He, he literally contradicts. He said, the Sabbath was created for man. Man was not created for the Sabbath. He's picturing himself as embodying the law. That is, he's greater than the law. The picture of the woman taken in adultery, you know, the phrase that he uses there, he's writing in the dirt with his finger. It's the same phrase that God wrote the Ten Commandments. In other words, the one that wrote the Ten Commandments is now here with us. Uh, he contains the law. He's, in other words, there is an abrogation. There is an undoing. The, the law may have served its purpose in a very similar way that the scapegoating mechanism did. You know, maybe that, I don't know, maybe that's also what the sacrificial system in the Old Testament does. Maybe it's doing both. You know, it's simultaneously changing up, but serving as a kind of outlet. And so I think that, that Boyd then will go back and begin to read those stories and recognize that even in the stories themselves, we have hints that what is unfolding there is not the way that God wanted it. So there is a counter tradition in the Old Testament, for example, that instead of the Joshua-like invasion of Canaan, there are passages that talk about a slow displacement of those people, and even, you know, an infestation of wasps that cause them to leave. Is that right, David? Yeah, no, I, I think that is. And I, a couple of years ago, I listened to a couple podcasts with Boyd explaining the book some, and some of the things that we've kind of read into those books, we've read into them, you know, massive slaughters and different things like that, and everybody was wiped out, and I think Boyd and I've heard others paint another picture that it wasn't this massive slaughter and annihilation of, of everybody. Just John Howard Yoder popped in my head. 
This your friend John Nugent has written applied Yoder to the Old Testament, right? I've never read Nugent's book. I just know he's done that. Yeah, he has. Yeah, no, Nugent's uh, would be worth reading, and that's kind of his expertise uh, as John Howard Yoder. And so I guess that I'm behind Boyd's sentiment there. In Hebrews, we have the picture of a final and full revelation of God. That in times past, God spoke to us through, you know, in many ways and by various means. The writer of Hebrews compares that to shadows. But now we have the reality. And this is repeated in several books of the Old Testament, that here is the full reality of who God is. That former understanding, I think, was not simply inadequate. I think it was mistaken. And it was mistaken in the way that the world will always be mistaken, that it will shape God in our own image rather than vice versa. And I think that's the significance, that tension, I think we should not turn our eyes from. And I think this is partly Girardian, because now the the way that people held together, the way they do identity, I think that it is there in this kind of notion of redemptive sacrifice, sacrificial religion. And don't we have sort of a, a hint in the way Jesus spoke to the religious rulers that they had obviously distorted what they were supposed to be doing, teaching. I mean, obviously some corruption had come in there, right? I mean, didn't Jesus come to dispel? When I read the, the verses that, you know, where God's saying, I didn't desire sacrifice, I read it as more of an idiom where he's saying, that wasn't what it was all about. That's not what I, that's not all I wanted. That was right. just, you know, that was just me trying to teach you something. Sacrifice was not the goal. It's not like I need food. I don't need this, this smell. I was after the sacrifice showed that you were trusting me, that you loved me, that, that you were willing to do what I say. It wasn't the sacrifice itself I was after. Yeah, uh, clearly I desire mercy. And really what is called for is circumcision of the heart is again and again that that he wants a real world righteousness, and that's not happening. And the Pharisees then are, and the Sadducees, in other words, the religious leaders, it's no accidents that they're the the ones behind the death of Christ. Christ is challenging the institutions of Israel, right? I mean, that's why he dies. He's challenging the religion. Right. And so if we turn away from that, we're going to miss it. It's not like everything's fine with Judaism. No, I think that it is incomplete. It's inadequate. It's mistaken in its incompleteness. And of course, the problem with it, I I spent the day in a kind of futile study of the word flesh. You know, what does that word mean? Boy, it's real hard to come up with a definitive picture. But I think the one thing you can come up with is that it, it's not that the flesh per se is problematic. You know, the law and the flesh are often equated, but it's trust in the flesh. It's trust in the law. It's to imagine that in some way it's an end in and of itself. That's the problem. And so, too, circumcision, literally, Paul describes as a trusting in the flesh. So the problem with entrusting yourself to Jewish religion completely is that mistake. It's the mistake of the flesh. To imagine this partial, finite system is full and complete. It's not true to Judaism to believe that, but the Jewish mistake is the human mistake. 
And maybe I, if I was, was critiquing my book, maybe I didn't give you enough information to get a grasp on Gerard. There's nothing difficult about him, but he's worthy of seeing what he's done and, and applying it. But it's there, you know, and talking about demythologization, I think this is what John is, in fact, doing in the first chapter. He's reading Genesis and saying, what's this book about? Well, it's about Christ. And it's a counter-myth. It's a counter-Genesis and John are a counter to the world's creation stories. Here's the real creation story. Because creation stories, origin stories, are always bloody. Origin myths are bloody myths. And so what we have in John and Genesis in the, in the very you know, opening book of who is Jesus, here is the one who brings peace. Once you have a, an origin myth that is violent, that's a cosmic violence, that the whole cosmos, the gods themselves are violent. But what is pictured in John and in a Johannine reading of Genesis, at the origin of the universe is not cosmic violence, but is cosmic peace. The one who creates originally is the, the Prince of Peace. All right, everybody happy? See you next week. See you next week. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.